If you would again, uh, take out your Bible and let's turn to John chapter 3. And we will be reading verses 22 through 36. John chapter 3, 22 through 36. As we are here finishing out uh, the third chapter of John. And uh, let's read this together. John 3, starting in verse 22. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because the water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reading of your word. We ask, O God, now that you would help us to draw our attention to the preaching of your word. We pray, Father, that you would work mightily in our hearts, that you would plant the seeds of your gospel deep, that in each of us it would take root that we may bear much fruit for the good of your kingdom and for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The church of Jesus Christ is often compared in the scriptures to a body. And just as a body has many members, that is, body parts, so does the church. Each member of the body has their respective role to play. 
Just as the foot cannot say that it is not part of the body because it's not a, because it's not a hand, so it is with the people of God. Each of us have our role in place. And there is a unity, a unity in the Spirit which exists among the covenant people of God. But there's also a diversity. There's a diversity of roles. Each of us are different. Each of us have differing gifts and do different things. And this, is, this has been the case throughout redemptive history. Just, just as it is today. Various prophets and patriarchs and priests and kings throughout history had their place in the accomplishing of God's will. And in our text today, John the Baptist understood this. He understood his place. He understood that he had a particular role and he was not to go beyond that role. In fact, John draws on another illusion to make this very point. That is, of a wedding. At a wedding, everyone has their respective roles. I mean, who do you have at a wedding? You have the bride. You have the groom. You may have bridesmaids and groomsmen. You have also the friend of the groom, the best man. Now we all know that it would be inappropriate for the best man to try to run off with the bride. That would, be, that would be inappropriate. That would actually be scandalous, wouldn't it? It would be inappropriate for the best man to try to draw attention to himself, to, to try to make himself to be the center of the entire, uh, the entire celebration. In the course of the wedding, the best man isn't there to draw attention to himself, to be the center of attention, to, to try to take the spotlight, as it were. No, the role of the best man in a wedding is to present the bridegroom, to point to him, to support his best friend on this most blessed occasion. Christ Jesus had come for his bride. And John the Baptist, as the friend of the bridegroom, understood his role. He understood where he was in the course of redemptive history. He understood his role was to highlight the fact that the long-promised Redeemer of the people of God had come to take his bride. That the one who had been promised in the Old Testament Scriptures had come now to fulfill all righteousness. This fits well now with the theme which John the Evangelist has been presenting throughout his Gospel. And notice how the theme of marriage continually reoccurs in this Gospel. Jesus, John wants us to understand, is himself the fulfillment of all of God's promises. These things are written, John says in chapter 20 and verse 31. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. 
Now, again, to reorient ourselves into the larger context of John, you might remember back in chapter 2, we, had, we saw that Jesus provided new wine. This was at the wedding feast. He, brought, he provided new wine, which was vastly superior to anything else, which had thus been, and thus he had rendered obsolete the ceremonial purification, which was typified by those stone jars at the wedding feast in Cana. Then we saw that Jesus cleansed the temple, and this points to his mediation between God and man. Remember that the contemporary Jewish leadership had failed to offer right sacrifices. In fact, they had allowed the temple complex to become a den of thieves in in a marketplace. But Jesus is, or in the course of things, will be the ultimate and perfect sacrifice who takes away sin. Then in chapter 3, we saw that he met with Nicodemus, a Pharisee and a teacher of Israel. In fact, uh, he calls him the teacher of Israel. And here Jesus speaks of spiritual rebirth and shows that he himself is the fulfillment of the water spirit regeneration which is spoken of in the Old Testament. And it shows how his death will be the ultimate antitype of the snake which was lifted up in the wilderness for all those who would look upon and be saved. And now, here at the end of chapter 3, the ministry of Jesus is again set over against something else. But in this time, that what is being compared to is actually the ministry of John the Baptist himself, who is the last of the Old Testament prophets. And notice that it's actually John himself who is arguing for the superiority of Jesus' ministry. John himself is arguing that Jesus is greater than himself. Because again, John understood his place. And he has to explain this to his disciples. That this was what was needed to happen. That John himself needed to fade off into the background. Because the Messiah had come. The the groom had come for his bride. It's right that Jesus was gaining disciples, even as many were crossing over and leaving John the Baptist. And John, as the friend of the bridegroom, was rejoicing. He wasn't upset, he was rejoicing. He He was willingly decreasing in prominence. He was joyfully stepping aside and ushering in the bridegroom to receive his bride. He was happily doing what God had called him to do, nothing more and nothing less. And so as we jump back into our text, you'll notice, you'll notice in verse 22 that there's some time had had passed uh, since Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus. Uh, We don't know exactly how long that interval was. It's It's not said here, but there was some time that had passed. And Jesus and his disciples had gone uh, into the Judean countryside, and they had remained there, and and Jesus' disciples were baptizing. Now, it says that he was baptizing. Later, John will clarify things for us and let us know that actually it's the disciples who were doing the baptizing, not Jesus himself. Now, the previous events with Nicodemus had occurred in Jerusalem. And so he wants us to understand now now the scene has shifted and now we're in the Judean countryside. 
And so John uh, was also baptizing. He was baptizing at Anon near Salem. Uh, Anon literally means the place of springs. And so there are, there's an abundance of water in this place. And there were people who were coming still to be baptized by John. Now John the Evangelist explains that this had occurred prior to John the Baptist being put in prison. So that gives us something of the time frame. Now, in the course of things, there was a dispute which had arisen. Some of the, there was some, somebody of the Judean countryside, somebody of Judea, had come to John's disciples and had begun to dispute with them over purification. Now, we, we, want, we may wonder what that dispute is exactly about. Like, what aspect are we talking about here? Uh, was, it the, was it over the merits of John's baptism versus Jesus' baptism? I mean, John mentions that, you know, the disciples of Jesus were baptizing, and, and John's baptizing was the dispute over, you know, here's this other guy who's got a better baptism than you. We might wonder if it's uh, over the difference between John's baptism and uh, the Jewish purification rites in general. Perhaps the clash centered around the difference between John's baptism and the more traditional uh, practices of purification. Whatever the source of the controversy is, and we're not really sure, here's what the net result is. The net result is that the followers of John noted that there were a lot more people going over to Jesus now than were coming to John. And so this was causing great concern for them. They were upset. They were upset that there there, there were others going to this Jesus fellow. And so verse 26, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. It's like they're saying to him, you know, like, Jesus is becoming more popular than you, John. This is a problem. Like, if you don't do something about this, everybody's going to be his disciple. And what are you going to have left? This was, all of this was very concerning to John's disciples. Now, of course, John was their favorite teacher. Right? He's their favorite teacher. And it's natural for you know, someone to love their teacher. But you know, and, and to them, that Jesus was nothing more than a, a new upstart and a, a threat to John's ministry. Notice, too, that they don't even name Jesus. They don't even name Jesus. They say, they refer to him only as he who was with you across the Jordan. You know... That guy. You know the one that you bore witness to? Yeah, him. They won't even say his name. So basically, listen, John, if you don't do something about this, everyone's going to be following him. You have lost all your followers. You will have nothing. You'll have no prominence. Come on, John. Get with the program. They loved their teacher. They wanted to see him grow in respect and prominence. They wanted him to have a great following. John's disciples were perhaps jealous of this new teacher, Jesus. And so they're irritated by this. They're first of all irritated because they had just had this dispute with this Judean over purification. And that's led to, wait a minute, this Jesus is getting a bigger following now. 
Jesus is taking all of John's disciples. You know, or they might say it this way. He's stealing sheep. He's a sheep stealer. Suffice to say that John's disciples don't understand the purpose of ministry. To them, John was supposed to gather lots and lots of people to himself. He was supposed to grow an influence. He was supposed to collect many followers. And many in our own day in Christian ministry also make some of the very same assumptions. They too don't understand the purpose of Christian ministry. There are some who assume that the purpose of the local church is simply to get more people through the door, to build influence, to build a brand, or generally grow in some level of prestige and prominence and power. This is why in some churches there are battles over control, there are political intrigues, and an us-them mentality. They forget what Christian ministry is supposed to be about. Beloved congregation, the purpose of Christian ministry is to be nothing less than the bringing of glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. To to aid the people of God in the fulfillment of their chief end, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. There should not be factions in the church. There should not be power plays in the church. Disunity, beloved, was a problem in in the Corinthian church. The church is called to be united around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pointing to eternal life, trusting and resting in our Redeemer and our Savior. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, if this church, that is Covenant Reformed Church, is to fulfill its calling, it will not be because we have the most influence over matters in this community. It will not be because we grow to become the biggest church in town. It will be because the gospel is clearly preached each Lord's Day. It's because the the gospel in all its glory and beauty is seen by people who know Christ Jesus and are presented to Him as mature in the faith. We must not forget what ministry, Christian ministry is supposed to be. What the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about Jesus himself. And so we see that John's followers were frustrated. They're frustrated because they have the wrong idea about what John's purpose is. And John's response was to remind them of his place and their place. Look at verse 27. He says this, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Doesn't that really put you in your place? Is there anything you have that didn't come from God? Anything? Everything comes from above. Your home, your car, your bank account, everything you have, even the junk sitting in your yard. All this is from the Lord. Spiritual things? Yeah. If you're a Christian, you know Christ. 
Because He has been revealed to you from above. You have been spiritually transformed. You have been born from above. You have been changed by the Holy Spirit internally. God is sovereign over every aspect of our lives. He stands hidden behind every human claim such that there is nothing which you and I have which has not been received from the very hand of God. This is true for the believer and the unbeliever alike. And this must be so. This truth is self-evident. Which even the unbeliever knows and yet they suppress in unrighteousness. All gifts come from heaven, which is to say that all comes from God because He's the creator of all things. Now in the immediate context, John was reminding his disciples that one of these gifts, one of the things which has come from God includes the particular call and station in life. Being in a particular time, in a particular place, in redemptive history. You see, John understood his place in redemptive history. He understood what his role was. He was called as a prophet of God. His role was not to gather sheep for himself. His place was to be a herald of good news. He was to be a voice crying out in the wilderness, pointing to the way to Christ, preparing the sheep for their master, preparing the bride for their groom. To be jealous of the Messiah was to disregard the ministry that he'd been given. Now this should be instructive for us. Each of us has been called to our own particular tasks and places in life. You were called, you were, you were born into a particular time and place. This was not by God's sovereign hand. You know, none of us, you know, you may have affinities for other times in history. Ah, uh, if only I could have been born in the 19th century or, you know, whatever, right? We may have affinities for other times, but you were called to be in the time and place you are in now, here. And not all of us are called to the same things. Not all are called to be preachers of the word, or not all are called to be street evangelists, not all are called to be missionaries in in foreign fields. But you might be called to disciple one person. A woman might be called to disciple one woman. Um, One man may be called to disciple one man. In all cases, the Christian has been assigned a place to proclaim the Savior, not to seek your own glory. God has an eternal plan which He is working out through His servants. And you and I have our respective roles to play. Again, John understood his place in redemptive history. John understood what he was supposed to be doing. He was to point to the Messiah who had come. And beloved, this is what we do too, isn't it? Isn't that really proclaiming the gospel? Pointing to Jesus? Not pointing to yourself. John did not have any right to go beyond what was given to him. He, he knew this. He, he had nothing. There was nothing he had which hadn't come from God. He had received from God. He couldn't claim any right to any honor or glory. This wasn't his claim. Again, John makes this clear. The glory was not reserved for him. The spotlight was not his to take. He was a nobody of importance in comparison to the Redeemer who had come. 
And this is why he declared again what he had already stated before, verse 28. He says, you yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ. It's like, I've already told you this. You guys know I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the one who was promised to come. I'm not your Savior. By the way, this is a good reminder as, the, as your pastor. I am not your Savior. You may come for counsel. I am not your Savior. The only thing I can do is point you to the one who is your Savior. To Jesus. And John is reminding his disciples, I already told you, you heard me tell you this. I'm not the Christ. Now John's not upset in the least that Jesus is gaining a popularity. In fact, he is rejoicing over this fact. Because this was his purpose. He had been very clear with them about who he is. Who he is not. His, his disciples were witnesses that John, John had borne witness to Jesus. He had already told them you need to go over there to them. To Jesus. You remember uh, when the delegation of Jewish authorities came to John? This is back in chapter 1. This delegation of authorities had come and they were asking him questions. Remember? His now John's disciples would have been present for some of this too. And he told them then, I'm neither the Christ, nor the, uh, Elijah, nor the prophet. As one commentator put it, unlike many preachers for, for whom humility is little more than an affection, John meant what he said. I think that's a great quote. John's not disturbed in the least for his role. And Jesus' role. These were from heaven. This is what God had determined to be the case. Now in order to illustrate the point further, John tells something of a parable. He illustrates, the illustration he uses draws on the picture of a wedding. In verse 29 he says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Okay, so you, you have a bride and you have a bridegroom. Who does the bride belong to? Doesn't belong to the friend of the, bri- of the bridegroom, right? The bride belongs to the groom. We already talked about the, the parts in the wedding. John's role was that of the, of the friend of the bridegroom. What we would call in our, sort of our nomenclature in modern, uh, modern day, the best man. The best man does not come to draw attention to himself. And, and by the way, maybe you've, maybe you've been in a wedding where a best man does sort of that thing. Or, or maybe somebody else in the wedding party. They draw a lot of attention to themselves. That's the sort of stuff that you talk about for years. How embarrassing that was, right? Because it's not right. It's not what's supposed to happen. The, 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 the friend of the bride, the, the friend of the bridegroom, rather, doesn't come to draw attention to himself. The best man's role is very simple. He has a very simple role. It's not a very complicated one. He points attention to the groom and to the bride. He is there to support them. He is there to love them. He is there to draw all of the guests to them. He's not the central attraction. He is a signpost pointing the way. The best man remains in the background. He's off to the side. He's out of the way. He is really almost unnoticed if he's doing his job well. 
It is the groom who has the bride. The friend who organized the details, perhaps presided even at the wedding, his, he rejoices greatly as he observes the ceremony that takes place without a hitch. His joy is made complete as the bridegroom receives his bride. Now, it's not, it's not that the best man is unimportant. It's just that he's not the most important player at the wedding. He has his role to play. He hears the voice of the bridegroom calling out to his bride. And his heart leaps for joy. His heart leaps for joy because the groom has come for his bride. Think, okay, this is the picture, right? Now, you're, maybe you have in your head a, a wedding. Now think, now think about this as Jesus has come for his bride. And John understands this. His heart is overjoyed. The Savior has come. This is, this is awesome, right? This is awesome. The groom, the bridegroom has come for his bride. And the church is the bride. And again, this is one of many pictures that the scriptures give us of Christ relating to the church. But Jesus here has come into the scene and he has come to receive that which belongs to him. And as the friend of the bridegroom, John the Baptist, had not come to take her for himself, he came to rejoice. There was nothing which made John more pleased than that Jesus, the promised Messiah and King, had come for his bride. And John now summarizes his point by saying this in verse 30. Very simple, really. He must increase, but I decrease. I must decrease. Beloved congregation, Jesus must be greater. John needed to be, become less. He needed to get into the background. He wasn't, he wasn't the main attraction. John's purpose was to prepare the way. He was a herald pointing to the Savior, pointing to Christ Jesus. And in this way, Jesus must grow in prominence. Jesus must be made greater, and I must be made Less. Isn't that instructive for our own lives? Christ Jesus must be made greater, and I must be made less. We'd solve so many of our own problems if we just understood that and applied that in our lives. The stature of Jesus must increase, the servant of Christ must diminish. Notice the must, right? It's not, well, it would be a good idea if this happened, but it's, you know, no. He must increase. It's an absolute necessity. And it's in accordance with God's eternal decree. Under no circumstances should the best man compete for the bride. That would be a very awkward wedding, wouldn't it? The best man is not there to compete for the bride. 
The name of Christ must be highly exalted. The na- that name which is above every name. The name of which every knee must bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is, is <clears throat> Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you and I are to be effective witnesses of Christ, if we are to share the good news, then we ourselves must diminish in stature. In the context of the church, this is generally the task of the minister. We preach Christ crucified, resurrected, and highly exalted. The church should never be about the man occupying the pulpit. Let me remind you again, I am not the Christ. I am not Jesus. I am not your Savior. The church should not be about the man occupying the pulpit. Sometimes in shorthand, people will say, you know, such and such pastor's church. You might say, you know, know, Pastor Paul's church. This is not my church. This is Jesus' church. I'm just just an under-shepherd. I'm a nobody. The church should not be about the man occupying the pulpit because the focus must be on Christ. The preacher is nothing more than a herald of the good news. He's a proclaimer of that which God has spoken. And so as Christ increases in stature, as Christ is proclaimed as as most glorious, my stature ought to decrease. I hope that as you hear the gospel, that you're not looking at me, but you're looking beyond. That I'm a window or a door, as it were, right? You're looking beyond. You're looking to what is being pointed to. Look to Christ. May, may you see Him. May, may the man in this pulpit shrink away so that the people of God can see their Savior in all His full glory and majesty. May you see His beauty. John was willing to be reduced to nothing so that the Son of God may shine brightly in this world with a glorious radiance. The servant of the king is in no way to attempt to eclipse Christ's glory. With the zeal of John the Baptist, Calvin said, quote, all pastors of the church ought to imitate by stooping with the head and shoulders to elevate Christ. Or if I, if I can put it maybe in a modern nomenclature, I just, I just need to like duck down, right? See Jesus. Don't see me. The joy of the servant of Christ is found not in the mass of people who follow with them. It is is not found in building bigger churches or organizations or followers. It is not found in getting more people on your team. The joy of the servant of Christ is found in the magnification of Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God. That the people of God would see him. Now, as we continue here in verse 31, we see the evangelist John actually making an extended comment. Now, there is some, some question of what, whether this is John the Baptist continuing to speak or whether John the evangelist is making commentary. I'm, I'm kind of on the, uh, I think that the, the quote actually ends with 
uh, he must uh, increase, I must decrease. And now here, John the Evangelist, the writer of the Gospel, begins to make an extended comment on it, bringing together a number of themes which we've already been talking about. And so John here explains that Jesus must be greater than John the Baptist, or anyone else for that matter, for this reason, because he's the one who comes from above. Right? This takes us all the way back to chapter 1, right? That Jesus was in the beginning with God and is God. The rest of humanity is of earth. We, you and I, belong to the earth. We, we speak in earthly sort of ways. But Jesus comes from heaven. He is the divine Son of God, and thus, He is above all else. Jesus, as the one who was sent from above, now bears witness to what He has seen and heard. Again, this is why we must decrease, right? Why Jesus must increase, because He is from above. In other words, John is is making this point. So Jesus bears witness to what he has seen and heard. And what has Jesus seen and heard? Jesus has seen the Father from all eternity. Who else has seen God but Jesus? The Father and the Son have perfect unity. And Jesus bears witness to the things which, <clears throat> which God has revealed because he's a direct eyewitness of these things. Which is to say, there is no one else who could speak to the things that Jesus speaks to. And yet, John says, no one receives his testimony. And again, John is repeating the evaluation that Jesus had given himself. Right? He's, he said that, that those who were, he was speaking to weren't receiving his testimony. But those who do receive his testimony, that is the believer, they're certifying that God is true. Not just that what Jesus said is true, but that what God says is true. Because, again, the words of Jesus are the very words of God. Because, again, Jesus is God. That's, that's the point that John is making here. Jesus says and does what God the Father says and does. And that to believe Jesus is to believe God. So, again, follow the logic of the statement being made. This is what John is driving at. Now, throughout the redemptive history, the Lord has spoken through His prophets. They, 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 these were those who were sent from God to speak the words of God. Each of them was given a measure of the Holy Spirit so that they complete their assigned task, right? So, so God sent out his, his prophets. They had a measure of the Holy Spirit. Here's Jesus in contrast. This is, why, again, why Jesus is greater. In contrast, Jesus has His Spirit, notice what the text says, without measure. Do you see that? Jesus has His Spirit without measure. He has the Holy Spirit without limit. Because He's God. John the Baptist had already testified earlier of having seen the Spirit descend and remain on Jesus. This was in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Here that same idea is repeated, though, in a different form. Jesus is superior to all the prophets, including this last of the Old Testament prophets. Again, what did we say the theme of this is? This is the superiority of Jesus' ministry over that of John the Baptist. John the Baptist testified to this fact, and here John the Evangelist testifies to it also. That Jesus is greater than John, because he has 
the full measure of the Spirit. And He comes from above. That God the Father had given the Spirit to the Son in full measure is because the Father loves the Son and has placed all things into His hands. Look at verse 35. It is the Father who sends and and the Son who is sent in perfect obedience to God's will. And so the relationship between God the Father and God the Son is one which is rooted in love. It is because of the Father's love that the Son has the Spirit without limit. For all things have been given to Him. All of which unfolds throughout the course of redemptive history finds its ultimate fount to be the loving relationship found within the triune God it's Himself. It is God sending out His prophets which speaks of the promise which is fulfilled in the Son who is sent as the Redeemer with the fullness of the Spirit. And so verse 36 provides a a fitting climax to this whole section. He says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Here's what we see presented here. We see presented two ways to live. One way to live is by genuine faith and repentance, believing in the Son of God and thus having eternal life. The other way to live is to live in defiant disobedience and as an enemy of God. For those who trust and rest on their Savior, they have eternal life. They have the promise of life to come, which is experienced in part now, but in fullness later at the end, in the end of all things. But then there is a warning, of, a warning looming of judgment to the defiantly disobedient. The wrath of God remains on those who continue to live in disobedience to God. Which then is to say that the default place of sinful man is, is not a neutral place. It's not neutrality. It's not like, well, they can kind of go either way here. No, those who are... uh, uh, The the, the natural place is to be under the wrath and curse of God. You and I are not natural children of God in that sense. The scriptures speak of God's love for His people. Jesus, the Son of God, came to rescue His people from sin, that they, that, they, that they would believe and have eternal life. But those who reject are under wrath because they were already under wrath. You see, it is because of the Father's love for the Son that you and I are able to stand before the throne of God as adopted children of God. The Son has delivered us from wrath and given to us eternal life. Thus, we've become adopted children. We've been invited as guests to the great feast. As a church, that is to say, corporately, we are the bride of Christ, for whom Jesus died for, and He will come again to receive on the last day. Jesus, Son of God, and the one who came from above to rescue sinners, those who are guilty before God of cosmic treason, walking in darkness and not in the light, John is making the point that only Jesus, only Jesus is qualified to do the work that He came to accomplish. The ministry of Jesus is superior to all else. No earthly priest could finally and completely take away sin. 
In fact, the entire Old Testament sacrificial economy was designed to show this. That as sacrifices were offered, they were offered over and over and over again. What a bloody place the temple must have been. There was a need for a final and complete atonement for sin. And only Jesus, the Son of God, could accomplish this. This is the point that John is making. And, the, and so those of us who speak of Jesus and of His gospel need to, need to, ensure, to ensure that this message is clear. We want people to come to faith in Christ, to trust and rest in Him alone for their salvation. We want them to grow in that faith by attending to corporate worship of the church and Bible studies and and generally relating to one another as believers in Christ. But our outreach efforts are not simply to collect people for ourselves. We want this church to grow. This is true. But not so that we can brag about how much we've grown or to simply collect people like we were people collectors or something. Our desire is to see this church grow because we want all gospel-proclaiming churches to grow. Shouldn't that be our prayer? Any, any church in this community that preaches the gospel of Jesus, praise God if they grow, that more people would hear the gospel. Our rejoicing is in the finding of lost sheep, that Christ is gathering His the rebel enslaved to sin is set free in Christ to, to be an adopted son. And if they go elsewhere for worship and fellowship, then let us rejoice anyway. For the lost has been found. The blind sees. What you and I should desire to, is to see people growing and maturing in Christ. And so when you and I share the gospel, we need to remember what our role is. We are testifying to Jesus Christ and His redeeming work. Our goal is to make disciples of Jesus, to make worshipers of the Lord, to point to the bridegroom who is ready to receive His bride. Which is then to say that one of the goals of evangelism and making disciples from among the nations is to see people connected with the church of Jesus Christ. Our disciple-making continues on in our helping one another grow in the Word. That is to say, people should be coming into the church. You want to see brothers and sisters growing in the Lord. And this, this is, by the way, how, the, how God the Father loves His people. He loves his, he loves his Son whom He sent, that we may trust in Him, that we may be spiritually reborn, that we may have eternal life in Him, so that we may obey Him. Walking in newness of life in Him. Delighting in the will of God. The Christian life is delighting in the Lord because the Lord delights in us, His bride. And may the delight of your heart be your Savior, Jesus. May you rest in Him alone. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your Word. and We're thankful, thankful for this reminder of how much we need to get out of the way. How much we need to decrease that Christ would increase, not that He could be made greater, but that people could see His beauty, to see Him. May we never attempt to eclipse Jesus. Oh, that many would come to saving faith, and that that all gospel, truly gospel-proclaiming churches would grow, that people would come and hear the Word of God, and see Jesus. 
and glory in Him. We, we praise You and ask You this in Jesus' name. Amen.